Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Tonight I bring you a compilation of the scariest true Let's Not Meet Stories, Volume 1. As always, remember to subscribe if you're new, and get comfortable with what is surely going to be a compilation you will enjoy. Anyway, without further ado, let's begin. Number 1 Okay. So this happened when I was around 9 years old, I'm 25 now, and it's something I will never forget. It gives me goosebumps to this day. I live in a terraced house, four houses combined, and my neighbour and I each have our own little patio. There's a small road 10 metres from my yard where people do their Sunday walks and so on. Only a small fence separates my small yard and patio from that road. I live in a pretty crowded area, with several of these terraced houses spread around in my neighbourhood, so seeing people walking on that road is pretty normal for me. Seeing random people standing on my patio is not. When I was nine, I usually got home from school about an hour before my mum got home from work. I live maybe 50 metres away from school, so my mum figured I was mature enough to be home alone for around an hour before she got home. This one day I got home from school. I did the usual thing which was to make sure I locked the front door and double checked that the back door leading to the patio was also locked. I was nine, being alone was a little scary even though it was in the middle of the day and only for an hour. I then rushed to my room upstairs to play my playstation as much as possible before my mum came home and made me do homework. While playing I heard the noise coming from outside my window. My room was located one floor over the patio with a view to the road I told you about before. It was kind of like the sound of a cat, but my cat had been missing for over three months. Hope sparked and I thought, oh my god, did he finally come back? I ran downstairs to check if it was my cat, but the sight that met me gives me goosebumps just writing this. There was a guy standing on my patio, a tall guy with black hair covering half of his eyes, making him look like a male version of the ring woman. I could hear him making high-pitched sounds, almost like a cat meowing. A brown liquid was running down from his mouth, and I could see him spitting out my dad's stomped cigarettes. He was actually eating from the ashtray. I was frozen, observing this. Eventually snapped out of it and screamed so loud that the man must have heard it. He didn't react. He kept on eating. I ran upstairs to my room, locked the door and called my mum who then called the cops. I've never been more terrified in all my life. Laying in my bed, under my sheets, shivering with fear as I hear these creepy high-pitched noises from the guy eating cigarette stumps from the ashtray on my patio. I kinda blacked out for a moment because the next thing I remember is the police arriving on the road in my yard. I hear them talking to the guy, saying stuff like, what are you doing here? Get over here or we'll come down and arrest you, and so on. He didn't respond, but the high-pitched sounds were more frequent and louder. I decided to look through the window, feeling safe now that the cops were there. I could see two police officers standing by my fence, one man and a woman. I did not see the creepy man, however, because he was standing directly one story under me, on my field of view. The police jumped the fence and I remember hearing the creepy guy screaming louder than anything I've ever heard before. He charged the female police officer with full force and he fully knocked her out cold. The male officer then immediately tased the guy leaving him shaking on the ground screaming still. The policeman struggled to keep him on the ground while putting handcuffs on him but eventually managed to. 
After a while, he managed to wake up the female police officer, who seemed to be badly hurt. He called for backup and an ambulance, and then he sees me standing in the window above him. The expression on my face must have been something else, because he just looked at me and said, I sure as hell hope you didn't see all that. I started to cry. By this time, my neighbours started to arrive wondering what the hell was going on. One of my neighbours, an elderly woman, made me come down and she took care of me until my mum came back home. The police took the creepy guy with them and the car and left. Before they left, they promised to come back and talk to us about what had happened. This is where the story takes an unexpected turn. The male officer came back later that night and sat down with me and my mum to talk. He explained that the guy on my patio was actually diagnosed with severe autism. He had escaped a facility where mentally challenged people lived, located around 5 kilometers from where I lived. He explained that the guy had actually been living in my house 5 years ago, but he had been forced to move when his mum, his only caretaker, died. The poor guy probably thought he would find his mum in my house. He missed the routines, he missed living there with his mum. The police had to move him from the house that time five years ago, because he was extremely strong from what I heard he had extreme tension in his body because of the autism, making his muscles grow stronger and stronger throughout the years. This was the reason he reacted the way he did when the police came this day. Still frightened, I told the police officer that he needed to make sure this would never happen again. He promised it wouldn't. After a few sleepless nights, my life got back to normal. The years went by and the guy didn't come back. Until one year ago. At this time, my mum and dad had moved out. I bought the house from them and I am still living there today. I was enjoying my morning coffee on the patio when I see the random guy stopping on the road by my fence. He just stands there, looking at me. I look at him and give him a nod and then I hear the high-pitched noises. Holy shit, it's him. His hair had turned grey, but the high-pitched sounds made me realise. My heart started racing, and I instantly remembered the reason why he was back. I realised that he must have managed to escape again, because I kept my cool a bit longer then than when I was nine. I started to realise how sorry I felt for the guy. Sixteen years later, and he was back to look for his mum. I decided to carefully ask him if he wanted to come down to the patio. He instantly jumped the fence. I started to think he would knock me out like he did the police officer. He didn't. He smiled. He looked at me and smiled. I offered him to sit down. He didn't respond. I offered him to come inside. He started laughing. We went inside. His face lit up, pure joy. He was home. It reminded him of the life he had with his mum. It almost made me tear up. All of a sudden, he sat down on my couch, turned on my TV, and switched directly to the cartoons. I observed him for a while. He was just completely focused on the cartoons. I just wanted him to enjoy the moment, so I didn't say anything to him. I realised I had to call the facility to let them know. The caretakers arrived ten minutes later. After a lot of convincing, he got back up, crying, and went back to the facility. I called the facility two days later. We made a deal. His name is Tom, and I now consider Tom my friend. Every Sunday from the day he returned, Tom and his caretakers visit me to watch cartoons. They say it's the highlight of his week. It makes my heart warm. Now, for several years, my thoughts were... Let's not meet guy on my patio eating from the ashtray. Now my thoughts are, let's meet every Sunday to watch cartoons, my friend Tom. Number 2 This happened to me four years ago. It's by far the most extreme and life-threatening situation I've been in. The eyewitness account you're about to hear is 100% true and is mine. For some understanding, this happened in the United States. It was the summer of 2012. My longtime boyfriend and I had recently gotten married. 
even though we were dirt poor college students and lived in a dinky apartment, we were having a blast. That particular summer, we gathered with our friends at the local movie theatre almost every weekend. There was one just down the street from our apartment that had really cheap movie tickets. A night out that was under $10 was certainly with our budget. Anyway, one Thursday night I received a call from the group of friends inviting us to watch the midnight premiere of the newest Batman movie. I had just finished working a 12 hour shift and was pretty tired. I almost refused the invitation and thought of crashing in my apartment instead. However, I didn't want to miss out on the fun, and it was a movie I'd wanted to see for a while anyway. Certainly, it wouldn't do any harm to stay up later than usual and miss a few hours of sleep, right? At 10.30pm, we met at the theatre. We passed large cardboard cutouts of Catwoman and Batman as we walked inside, greeted by the smell of buttery popcorn and the chatter of excited moviegoers. The ticket booth was to the right of the entrance, and just above that was the electronic list of movies being played. The 12am showing of The Dark Knight Rises was displayed up there in the right red letters. Being paranoid that the tickets would sell out quickly, one of my friends swung by earlier that day and purchased tickets for all of us. We bypassed the ticket line and went straight to the ticket taker. She smiled at us and kindly directed us to Theatre 9 which was on the right side of the lobby. If only I had known what I do now. That among the crowds a killer was lurking. That as I walked across that tacky red and purple carpet towards Theatre 9, I could have been walking to my death. I think about it often now. What I would have done had I known. Pulled the fire alarm, called the police, screamed for people to run away. But of course, I had no way of knowing what was about to happen. Oblivious to the peril I was putting myself in, I pushed open the doors for Theatre 9 without giving it a second thought. The hallway in this theatre was shaped like a U, and you could go either right or left. Theatre 9 was the largest screening room in the building, perfect for accommodating the crowds that midnight premieres brought in. The screen was motionless and grey, not even the previews had started yet because there was still a good hour and a half to go until the movie actually started. We entered on the right side, so all of the seats were to our left. I remember being surprised at just how packed the theatre already was. Just about every seat was filled, much to our dismay. At first it seemed like we wouldn't find a spot to sit together. Now, the way this theatre was set up, there was a section of the seat right in front of the screen. This area was flat and there were about five rows of seating in the section. A lot of seats in that section were empty, but sitting right in front of the movie screen sucks and none of us wanted to sit there. One of my friends then spotted a row with five empty seats all next to each other, perfect for the amount of people we had. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. These seats were about three to four rows up from where the seating row starts to elevate. We ran up the stairs before someone could take the seats and fly down. My husband Brock sat in the fifth seat. I sat next to him and my friend Samantha sat next to me on my right side. Her boyfriend Tommy sat next to her and another friend named Leo sat on the aisle seat. We spent the next several minutes casually chatting, joking around and laughing. After a while, my three friends went to the lobby to buy drinks and addicting movie theatre popcorn. While they were gone, Brock and I passed the time by people watching. The theatre was bright since the lights weren't dimmed yet, and I could see everyone clearly. There were a lot of people dressed in Batman t-shirts and hoodies. One person even had a mask and one of those shirts with an attached cape. There were a lot of kids in attendance as well, which wasn't surprising because even though it was a Thursday night, it was summer vacation so that meant no school the next day. 
Of all the people I saw, the person I will never forget was the little girl in our same row a few chairs away. She was really cute, blonde with blue eyes, and passed us several times on our way to the lobby, each time coming back with various snacks and popcorn. Overall, people seemed very excited to see the movie, and the room was filled with energy and laughter. After what seemed like an eternity of waiting, the lights started to dim and the previews began. Just like every movie I've seen before, a quick animation flashed across the screen reminding us to get refreshments from the lobby. We were already devouring the popcorn like ravenous animals, to silence our cell phones and to make sure to know where the emergency exits are. The animation had this ugly CGI cat in a tuxedo which was sitting in a movie theatre. I casually glanced at the bright green emergency exit signs that were on my left and right side of the movie screen. I didn't think much of the reminder, like usual. After that, I only remember one preview for The Man of Steel, the others I am not sure what they were about. When the movie started, the theatre erupted into cheering and clapping. The title of the movie, The Dark Knight Rises, exploded onto the screen. This was followed by the scene where Bane is hijacking a plane. I thought this scream was pretty cool and it caught my interest right away. Only when the movie started to get a little less interesting did I remember just how tired I was. I decided I would close my eyes at the more boring parts to get a little bit rest. I had been awake for 20 hours at that point so I was rightfully sleepy. My eyes were closed for most of the duration of Batman and Catwoman's encounter. I don't really remember what was going on in that part of the movie. Perhaps some of you have seen it and know what I'm talking about. Anyway, when I opened my eyes again, Bruce Wayne was on his computer digging up information on Catwoman. This was the last scene I saw. I never got to watch the rest of the movie. All of a sudden, a loud bang erupted from the left side of the theatre. I sort of screamed a little because it startled me. A strange smell started to fill the auditorium. It was like the smell of a firework, so I thought it was a cherry bomb or something similar. Had someone throw fireworks into the crowd as a prank, then down near the right side of the movie screen, the dark silhouette of a person caught my attention. There was just a black frame against the bright movie screen. A series of flashing lights was coming from this person. It was a weird moment where time literally slowed down and everything was strangely quiet. I was completely frozen, unable to move and really unable to think at all. It was like my brain had stopped working entirely. Brock caught on immediately to what was happening and he grabbed me. He pulled me to the ground and lay on top of me, shielding me with his own body. At this point in time, sound returned to me. I could hear the gunshots ringing out across the theatre. People were screaming. The movie was still playing on top of it all creating a chaotic explosion of sound. I realised the flashing lights I had seen were bullets flying out of a gun barrel. An instant sensation of adrenaline flooded my body. There was absolutely nothing I could do except lay there and hope to God that the bullets heard ripping through the seats and walls wouldn't go through me. At one point, shrapnel hit my head, cutting off a good chunk of my hair. And as I reached for the spot to make sure it wasn't bleeding, hot pieces of metal fell into my hand. I was lying face up so I could see everything that was happening. The lights from a still playing movie danced across the ceiling and walls. My friends were on the floor with me. Our unfinished bucket of popcorn was spilt all across the floor. Leo had his legs sticking out into the aisle because there wasn't enough room for him to hide completely behind the seats. At some point, Samantha's water bottle had been in the cup holder between our seats, exploded. Water splashed all over my face. The smell of gun smoke was overwhelming. Right grade tear gas made me cry and caused me to cough uncontrollably. There was another smell too. The horrible metallic smell of blood I'll never forget. I remember my lower body feeling wet, all of a sudden. For some reason I thought this came from the leaking water bottle, but I soon realised this wasn't the case. All of a sudden, things went strangely quiet. The bullets had stopped for some reason. 
Tommy shouted, let's get out of here. We took advantage of the opportunity and made a run for it. We ran down the stairs across the front screen towards a bright green exit sign. We crammed into a small closet-like space where the door was. It was so dark we had a hard time finding it. We screamed and slammed on the walls to find the door, blinded by the tear gas and dumbfounded by shock. Then finally, my hands felt the metal door handle and I pushed against it with all my strength. The door flew open and the light of a nearby streetlight flooded our eyes. We pushed against the door so hard that we fell over. Samantha lost her pink flip-flops just outside the doorway. As I scrambled to my feet and I literally ran for my life, I realised my legs were red, absolutely soaked with blood. It was like I dipped my legs into a bathtub full of it. I checked my body all over and realised I wasn't injured at all. Where had this blood come from? I looked behind me and realised that the blood was my husband's. He had been shot in the leg. A massive gaping hole had ripped through his lower half of Brock's leg. His foot was barely hanging on and dangled lifelessly. Leo and the young man I didn't recognise were carrying Brock because after falling outside the door, he lost all his strength and couldn't walk. I was completely shocked. I had no idea he had been injured, especially since he was right behind me the whole time and managed to escape the theatre all by himself. How did he on one foot? I'll never know. At this point I screamed. My screams were so loud that it alerted nearby construction workers at the back of the theatre. There was a narrow parking lot followed by a grassy lawn and then the street beyond that. The construction workers were doing road repair on the street, but as soon as they heard the screams and saw us running, they stopped working and watched what was going on. I'm not sure why this is such a vivid part of the memory. Anyway, they carry Brock along the back sidewalk all the way to the end where the corner of the building is. This was quite a distance, several dozen feet. My husband then collapsed from exhaustion and pain, saying he couldn't move anymore. He lay down and a puddle of blood started to form beneath him. I looked back and realised we had left a trail of blood leading from the door all the way to our current position. I was trembling. I, I knelt beside Rock and glanced around to see who else was injured. Tommy had been shot in the knee and the hip and was further away in the parking lot. The teenager who had helped my husband was also injured. His dad and mum were with him. His mum was sitting against the wall and looked like she was going to pass out. She was bleeding from several places. That family escaped at the same time we did. I guess they heard the bullet stop and decided to make a run for it too. We were all lucky because the shooting was still going on inside. I had to take off my shirt and use it to stop the bleeding. I'll never forget how lifeless and limp his leg felt. I imagine that's what a dead body must feel like. I got blood all over my hands and arms. The police showed up really, really fast. I'd see we were only outside for a minute or two before the red and blue lights filled the night and rushed to our location. We were literally a block away from the police station. A female officer stood by us the whole time until paramedics arrived, which took a very long time. Brock was one of the last to be taken to a hospital. He was bleeding out for almost 20 minutes before an ambulance pulled up on the same street with the roadwork. At this point, he had become almost unresponsive and was on the verge of unconsciousness. Several massive guys rushed across the grass with a stretcher loaded him onto it and then ran with him back to the waiting ambulance. I wasn't able to go with him because there was another injured person in the ambulance and it was too crowded. I wandered around to the front of the theatre alone, unsure of where my friends had went. My blood-stained shirt and a pool of blood were left behind on the corner of the sidewalk. Walking through the crowds felt like a dream. I couldn't believe what just happened. People were in hysterics and crying. A lot of people such as me were covered in blood, and like me, I'm pretty sure the blood staining their skin and clothes wasn't their own. A lot of people seemed to notice how lonely and dazed I looked, so they kept me company and even offered me a ride to different hospitals to find Brock, because I hadn't been told what hospital he was taken to. I hung around these people for a while as the police swarmed the area and asked us what we saw inside the theatre. The whole parking lot was on lockdown and we weren't going to be allowed to leave anytime soon. It was around 2am so it was very dark outside still 
and it was pretty cold, wearing only an underskirt and shorts. The flashing red and blue lights of what seemed like a hundred police cars were blinding. I remember seeing a big police vehicle pulling up that said something like, Crime Scene Investigation Unit. I think that's when it really sank in and hit me. I started to get sick to my stomach and wanted to vomit. But somehow, I was able to hold it back. Eventually, police started letting people leave. I jumped into my truck and booked it out of there. I was in such a panic that I didn't even think to go back to my apartment, grab my cell phone, which I had forgotten, and call my parents or something else to help me. I I was angry, upset, scared, and most of all still in a state of shock. Was I really going to lose Brock only a month shy of our first wedding anniversary because of some psychopath with a gun? Thankfully, by the time dawn rolled around, I found the hospital he was treated in. This was in the next city over, maybe 45 minutes from the theatre, if you're going the speed limit. I was so happy to be there, and the hospital staff were all so welcoming and understanding. After making sure I wasn't injured as well, they let me wait in ICU room that Brock would be placed in when he was done covering from surgery. I was so glad he was alive. Brock and Tommy both had to survive, though many others weren't so lucky. I found out the following day after much needed sleep on a hospital couch that 12, that 12 people were killed in the shooting and over 70 were injured. I remember they first thought 15 people were killed, but the real number was 12. The little blonde girl sitting in my row did not survive. She died in the theatre no more than a few feet from us. She had been shot multiple times. A heartbroken police officer who cried during his court testimony tried unsuccessfully to save her by carrying her out of the theatre and having her sent to a hospital. Tommy was rushed to a different hospital in the back of a police car. He underwent surgery and made a full recovery. The bullet missed his hip bone and narrowly missed his urinary tract and bladder. According to the surgeon, my husband lost almost half his blood. Brock made it to the hospital just in time. Any later and he would have died. He underwent several blood transfusions and was only in the hospital for 21 days. The wound on his leg was severe enough that they had to amputate it after trying unsuccessfully to save it. It's been so long since the shooting happened that my husband, friends and I have been able to recover from it somewhat. The event was pretty horrific and it has left us scarred for sure. I wouldn't consider that part of the story to be creepy though. No, the creepy part is the shooter himself. I later learned much about him from the murder trail that we would follow in the coming years. Though my encounter with this man was very brief, he has affected my life greatly. Just to know that people like that exist is disturbing. He is certainly one twisted individual that I never want to see again. I learned everything from watching the televised trial that took place in early 2015. The guy was going to school for neuroscience or something in California. I guess he was pretty smart. However, for some reason, he has an obsession with killing people and had a stalker mentality. After dropping out of his university, he moved to my state and chose my local theatre to commit a mass shooting. Before that, he was planning on hiding along remote hiking trails up in the mountains jumping people, pulling them into the woods and killing them there, though he never went through with that idea. He stalked my theatre for months and had this shooting all planned out for the night of July 20th. Though I never saw him before this, it's unnerving to think this guy could have been watching us every time we went to that theatre, and we would have never have known it. We were completely unaware of what he had planned. This completely ruined my sense of security because who knows what the stranger next to you is planning on doing to you. I came very close to the shooter, but I never actually saw his face in person until I was forced to testify in court. Of course, I saw his mugshot on television, but while in the theatre, I only saw him as a dark silhouette in the shadows, like a demonic figure rendered from the darkest and most sinister nightmare. He was even in the hallway that we passed upon running for the emergency exit, the only thing stopping him from killing us there and then was his jammed assault rifle. 
To commit this crime, he ordered a few thousand rounds of ammunition, riot gear and armour, tear gas and assault rifle, and a shotgun. He took pictures of himself, which were shown in court, wearing all the gear like some sick trophy, and holding up these weapons with a menacing smile. He dyed his hair orange and put these creepy black contacts while making devilish faces into the camera, something that made me sick just looking at. Before driving to the theatre with all the gear in his car, he booby-trapped his entire apartment and set it to explode if anyone opened the door. Then once at the theatre, he posed a movie gore and even bought a ticket for the movie. I think his ticket had Theatre 8 in it, which was next door, but Theatre 9 had more people in it, so he went into number 9 instead. He was in a few front rows that I must have passed him several times in the lobby while he was there. Maybe he had seen me too. At some point during the movie, he got up and went through the side exit, which didn't have an alarm for some reason, kept it popped open, and then went to his car to put all his armour and grabbed his weapons. Then he came back inside and started shooting. When we escaped the theatre, we ran past his white car which was parked right at the exit. We didn't even notice it. At some point he came outside and he would have seen us there on the concrete. I, I don't know what would have stopped him from shooting people that were outside, but he could have easily ended us there and then if he had wanted to. I think the hardest part for me was facing this twisted individual in court. I'll never forget rising as they called my name, walking down the centre row past my family, other survivors and crowds of news-hungry media personnel. I sat right across from him, maybe only 10 feet away, while his orange hair was gone and he wasn't wearing black contacts. Being so close to him was creepy and an uncomfortable experience. My encounter with this man was certainly one I will never forget. I can now say that I've come face to face with a true, deranged psychopath. He just had this blank stare in his eyes the whole time. If eyes truly are windows to the soul, then his soul was filled with nothing but a cold indifference for those he had murdered and harmed. He wouldn't even look at me. Sitting across from him in court was the second time I had only been in the same room with this man. A man who had tried to take my life, but thankfully failed. A man who would end up spending forever behind bars when, at the end of it all, he was sentenced to 3,318 years in prison for his crimes. This is the man who tried to kill me. This man who has caused countless nightmares and fueled the fires of my paranoia. The man who hurt my friends and family, causing years of untold grief for my husband because he will never walk the same again. The man who stole the innocence and joy from a six-year-old child who went into the theatre alive and came out dead. To the man who carried out the worst mass shooting in Colorado history. Let's not meet again, ever. I hope you rot in prison. Number 3 My husband and I were at the supermarket and our baby was being especially fussy, so he took her for a quick drive, the emotion of which usually calms her down. It only took about 10 minutes to settle her, and I was still in the store, but was unsure how much longer I'd be in there, and there's poor cell reception inside so he pulled back into the parking lot to wait for me. It was an unreasonably nice day, so he took her out in the car seat to sit on one of the benches outside the store. He took a business call and had just sat them down, absent-mindedly rocking the carrier, when a woman, well-dressed, mid-thirties, average height, fit build, approached them. It's not uncommon for people to ask to play with her baby. She's got big rosy cheeks, soft wisps of gold hair, and a most adorable gurgly toothless grin, especially when she's deep in a good nap. But her nap schedule is paramount, so my husband was preparing to tell the woman she actually couldn't play with her baby right then. She walked over right in their direction, brimming with nonchalant confidence, and before he can even finish his sentence explaining she was napping and not to be touched, she picked up the carrier and started walking off. He was in shock for a minute, not fully believing someone would ballsy enough to do something so sinister in plain daylight. So he said excuse me, put her down, 
as his panic mounted. She remained calm this entire time, but when he called after her, she started walking away more briskly than when she'd approached. He ran full speed, ahead tried to grapple the carrier out of her hand, finally resulting to restraining her arms. The woman yells, help, he's trying to take my baby. Kidnapping, 911, help. Kicking him in the shin and pulling a pink bottle of pepper spray out of her handbag. Of course, no one in the parking lot was clocking the earlier interaction and assumed he was really a kidnapper. A lone man in a Deadpool t-shirt versus a tiny, well-dressed woman. Immediately, a man knocked my husband to the ground and was holding him down. He could hear bystanders encouraging the woman to file a police report, but she was doing a very convincing job of acting shaken up and insisted she just wanted to get home. To make matters worse for my husband, he was driving a minivan. He was in a raw state of panic, realising the entire parking lot and banded together to inadvertently facilitate the kidnapping of our daughter. He was begging and pleading with them, but no one was listening. They just kept screaming at him that the jig was up and he needed to lie still and wait for the police to stop terrorising a young mother. My husband finally had the novel idea to show them family pictures on his phone, but too panicked to think clearly. This manifested as him shouting, I have pictures of the baby on my phone, but of course everyone interpreted as him having either stalking photos or worse, pornographic images of the baby. It was at this point that a man, I can't entirely blame the man considering what he thought was going on, kicked my husband as hard as he could in the ribs. It was at this point I was coming out of the store and I thought he was being robbed by these people. I was yelling for security, so panicked my chest contracted and I could barely get any sound out. It was only then I realised he did not have our baby with him. When I saw she was being held by a woman, I was relieved. I thought maybe the woman had intervened to move my daughter out of harm's way while my husband was being robbed and was walking away to get help. I couldn't find security guard outside the store, so I ran up to the people holding my husband down, waving my wallet, pleading, Take everything you want, just let up and leave us alone. And one of the men holding him down said something like, Lady, we need to wait for the police to deal with him. And I was so confused. Why would the muggers have called the police? I just kept stammering in, What do you mean? What are you talking about? I made out someone saying he tried to abduct that woman's kid. I did not understand and wasn't sure I'd misheard him. My husband would never hurt a child, and we have our four kids. If he were going to commit a crime, bringing home another kid would be at bottom of his list. I kept trying to understand what the man was saying and suddenly, it all clicked. I looked around for the woman who had that baby carrier and she was halfway across the parking lot. I went into total ballistic tiger club mode literally leapt out of my heels and sprinted across the parking lot. I'm not a UFC fighter, I've never taken a self-defence class, so all I could think to do was grab the woman by her hair and squeeze her throat with my other hand, which didn't do much. She was getting away even as I grappled with her. Amazingly, none of the other bystanders had yet connect that my husband was telling the truth and this woman was absconding with my baby. I yanked on her hair as hard as I could and that was enough to make her drop the carrier. I was so scared and surprised that I actually just threw myself on top of the carrier, covered the entire thing like a blanket, and stayed that way without saying or doing anything else. The woman left. Not one person tried to stop her, even though she was clearly leaving without the child she claimed was hers, which was pretty damn incriminating if I'd watched the scene unfold. Within the next couple of minutes, police had arrived, after all that, there were still several bystanders who explained it as my husband trying to kidnap the baby. The police, to my horror, assumed that she must not have had bad intentions. The first question they asked me after getting her description weren't investigative. There were questions thinly veiled, trying to convince me not to pursue charges, still placing blame on my husband. A small sampling, do your husband and the baby look dissimilar? Is there any chance she thought he was abducting the baby and she was trying to intervene? Could your husband have been doing something inappropriate or violent to the baby that would make her feel compelled to extricate the baby from the situation? Did she seem groggy or confused? 
Could she have mistaken either of them for her own family members? Then spent more time verifying that the baby was actually mine than they concerned themselves with the fact that the baby was not actually hers. My husband had called his brother at that point who works in an office with a lot of lawyers and connected with one as soon as possible who gave us the priceless advice to get every officer's name and badge number, to request copies of the store security tapes right away and to escalate our complaint higher up the chain if these officers weren't taking us seriously. Finally, we had reason enough to believe we were being taken seriously. And we went home and both just shook and cried until we had to get our kids from school. My husband is seething with rage and grappling with a feeling of helplessness from how how little he was able to do and has two cracked ribs from when he was kicked by that man. To the officer's credit, they did ask if he had liked to press charges but considering the man was genuinely convinced at this time that he was on the right side of the intervening in a kidnapping and stayed to talk to the police and apologised profusely when the truth became clear. He declined to press charges. Amazingly and frustratingly, there were still people who stuck around to talk to the police who were giving my husband dirty looks, and one man who even implored the police to involve CPS to verify it was really our baby. Parking lot kidnapper and parking lot sceptics. You better hope we don't meet. Number 4 I was about seven years old, my brother about ten. It was well past our bedtime when our mum woke up off the couch to put us to bed. Our dad worked construction out of town back then, so it was often just us three at the house for weeks at a time. Up the stairs and to the immediate right was our parents' bedroom. Going left put you in the middle of a hallway. Taking another left down the hallway led to my brother's room. The opposite end was my room, which was also across the hall from our upstairs bathroom. At the end of the hallway, our windowed doors we always kept locked and rarely used. The door on my end led to a balcony overlooking our front yard, and the door on my brother's end opened to our back porch. The house kind of leans into a small hill. My brother and mum both had a habit of waking up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. I only knew this because I was always a light sleeper and they just couldn't help flushing with their door wide open. This night, however, my brother stopped in his way to his bedroom and came back towards the bathroom. I- I'm going to try and pee before I go to bed. The past few nights I've been too afraid to walk to the bathroom. I keep seeing a man wearing stripes at the end of the hallway. I don't know if my mum wrote it off as my brother telling ghost stories to try and scare me or if she was already half asleep and didn't catch it but she didn't react at all to my brother's confession. I, on the other hand, was terrified by it. The fear of seeing a ghost like that at the end of the hallway or through the window and the reason I started running from the stairs to my bedroom at night. Years later, when I was about 18, my mom and I were having a conversation in her car about a dog we had for a very short time when I was little. We were sharing stories about Maxie's tendencies towards destroying my shoes and other unruly behaviours when my mum blurted out. Do you remember that time I opened the front door for the cops and Max ran inside to the kitchen and started tearing open the big bag of dog food we had? This really caught me by surprise, because in all the years I lived in that house we never once called the cops. Gun owner, family and a quiet rural neighbourhood. I asked her what she was talking about and she looked equally surprised, as if she had revealed something by accident. Oh, that's right, I never told you because you were too young at the time. One night I woke up hearing noises outside my window, and when I looked I saw a man staring into my bedroom. She went on to describe how turning on the lights caused him to take off running, and how she grabbed my dad's pistol before calling the cops. I can't remember all the details I gave them when they showed up. Tall white male, wearing a striped shirt, jeans, short dark hair, something like that. He said it matched the description of a man they were looking for in the area. It turns out he had escaped from jail on a murder charge. Now, I know it sounds obvious hearing those two stories back to back, but it wasn't until a few years ago, in my mid-twenties, that I pieced together that my brother had unknowingly warned us about a murderer who spent multiple nights casing our home. Number 5 
This happened to me about a month ago, but it still boggles me. Two points of background to make this story make sense. One, I live in Tokyo and commute via the famously crazy crowded trains daily. There exists on them this kind of unspoken agreement that everyone works together to make this suck as little as possible. People for the most part hold their backpacks in front of them. Men don't manspread. But that's when the trains are full. About two stops before mine, the train goes from sardine can to everyone can on this train, could lay on the seats and have room left over. So usually I can sit down at this point. Number two, I'm not a Japanese woman. Very obviously so, even when I'm in my white dress, shirt and pencil skirt like all the other office drones. I'm often the only obviously non-Japanese woman on my train in the morning. But despite my appearance, I'm fluent in Japanese. So one day I sit down on the train as it empties out. Headphones in, mobile game going, ready to enjoy the 10 minutes of sitting I get on my hour commute. I'm sitting with my legs crossed, but there's maybe 10 people in the whole car, so I'm not in anyone's way. I'm turned out when all of a sudden a hand reaches out and grabs my bare knee. I of course jolt straight out of my skin, rip out my headphones and look up at the hand's owner. It's some skinny old Japanese dude in my in his 60s. He points at my leg, then at the other people on the train. Again, a max of 10 in the car that can hold 50 plus easily, probably held about 80 10 minutes ago. In slightly broken English, he says, you must not cross legs. I'm so bewildered by this, I start to tell him in Japanese, the train isn't crowded right now, I'm not in anyone's way. But he doesn't like this answer. He starts to reach for my legs again, presumably to uncross my legs himself. I, liking even less of this, summon up my loudest non-scream, DON'T TOUCH ME, and thankfully this is enough to get him to stop that. As another thing you don't do on trains here is make a fuss. Sadly though, yet another thing you don't do here is get involved. So despite a woman all but screaming, don't touch me, it's some foreign woman causing trouble, best not to get involved, etc. So no one comes over. So while I've made it clear that I will not stand for physical confrontation, the old dude still feels comfortable enough to stand directly in front of me, nearly knee to knee, looming over me while he repeats endlessly, you must. He did this for at least five minutes. I didn't move. I didn't blink or break eye contact. I started plans B through to P of how to get off this train and at the next stop. Thankfully, he gave up before the next stop shaking his head and calling me a rude bitch in Japanese before wandering off. Still take the same train, but haven't seen him since. Let's not meet again, leg police officer, lest you find out what happens when you loom over a girl a dick-punting height. Number 6 So last night, I was at a classmate's house working on a group project we have due tomorrow. I live in an apartment in the town, where our university is located and my classmate lives at his parents' house which is in the foothills just outside of the town. In order to get to the house, you have to drive along a relatively secluded and narrow two-lane road for about five to six miles. We started working on the project at about 6pm and I ended up hanging around for a while after we had finished our working. So I left his house pretty late, at about 11, and started down the road back towards town. I didn't realise how tough it would be to navigate the road at night. There were no street lights, and the road was unkept and riddled with potholes. On top of this, I had no cell service, so I had to drive very slowly to make sure I didn't blow out any of my tyres, since I had used my spare a couple of weeks back. I figured I was about three miles from the house when I rounded a tight corner and saw a pickup truck with a camper shell parked diagonally across the road. The manner in which it was parked completely impeded my path, and I couldn't drive around it because there was a gully on both sides of the road. The only way for me to go at this point was backward, where there was a pull-off that I could use to turn my car around. At first I couldn't see inside the cab, but when I turned on my high beams, I saw that there was a man slouched over in a driver's seat, his head wrestling against the steering wheel as if it had been knocked out after a bad accident. 
I immediately sensed something was wrong. The way his car had just coincidentally come to the rest in a position that totally blocked the road was a big red flag for me. I had heard stories of people playing dead in the road as a way to lure unsuspecting people out of their cars so they could rob them. I decided fuck this shit and elected to go back to my classmate's house and explain what was going on. I threw the car into reverse and kept my eyes darting back and forth between my rear view and the truck. I looked and saw that I was almost to the pull-off where I could turn around. When I looked back, my heart skipped about five beats. The man who had been slouched over in the driver's seat was now walking at my car. At a hurried pace, with a few other men jumped out of the camper shell and started moving towards me as well. I panicked and accelerated backwards into the pull-off, which messed up the undercarriage of my car pretty bad. As I put it into drive, the guy was already at my passenger side door, tugging on the handle which, thank the lord, was locked. I only caught a brief glimpse of him, but his face appeared to be scabbed and lathery, definitely a meth head or some sort of drug abuser. I sped away and didn't slow down at all until I reached the house, constantly checking my rear view to see if they were following. Thankfully, they didn't tell me, and when I reached the house, I explained what had happened to my classmate and we called the cops. I was grateful that my buddy's parents were kind enough to let me stay the night. They didn't find anyone on the road matching their description, but I failed an instant report, and they told me they'd be on the lookout for a similar vehicle and any suspicious activity. But holy shit, uh, I'm still so sure cop over it. I keep getting the same adrenaline rush I got when I saw the guy charging me whenever I think about it. Please share similar experiences you've had, as I would appreciate a good read or a good decision to help me clear my headspace. Thank you all for listening, if you made it this far, truly. If you enjoyed, please be sure to leave a like and maybe even subscribe. Anyway, I'll see you all in the next one. Thank you.